going to be the most sustainable, what's going to move me ahead, and what ultimately can help me increase not just my volume, but my, you know, my fees, my quality of searches. I think that's a, a, a good rationale to go forward with. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and my special guest today is Rob Bowerman. Rob's making a second appearance on the show. Rob's been a successful executive recruiter since 1994, and he launched his firm, The Bowerman Group, in 2009. Rob and his team recruit for the retail industry focused on specialty and luxe brands, Rob is also the current president of the Pinnacle Society, which is the premier consortium of the industry-leading recruiters in North America. Rob, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this again. Thanks, Mark. It is a pleasure to be with you. You know, I was looking back, and we last spoke in June of 2020, so two years and a couple lifetimes ago. Just a few things have happened since then. Absolutely. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) So the podcast was published in August 2020. Um, so be sure for the listeners to check that out. It was episode number thirty-two, and it was called "How to Build a Seven How to Build a Seven Figure Search Firm with a Small Virtual Team." Um, Rob, listen, I am grateful to you not only for appearing on the podcast, but also introduce me to other Pinnacle members who have also been guests on the show, and the quality of the people who I interview, I'm sure, is a major factor in the reason this show has been so successful. And so your kind support in that regard has brought tremendous value to our audience and I sincerely appreciate it. Oh, it's, you know, it's my pleasure. And I, and I love what you do, Mark, you know, the variety of guests you bring in and the global aspect of it. It's always good for us here on this side of the pond to hear what's going on in, in other markets. And we all sort of have the same problems and issues and there's a lot of commonality, but it's good to get those different twists on things. Well, great. Thank you for saying that. That's awesome. Um, So listen, can you, first of all, just bring me up to speed on what's been happening at the Bowerman Group in the last nearly two years since we did this? Yeah, shoot. So um, we've, our team has stayed kind of small. I like to call us small, but mighty. I added on one person. So we're a team of seven. Um, I found that's just a sweet spot for me. Um, As you may or may not remember, I run a remote model which, you know, everyone went to a distributed workforce back in COVID for one reason or another. I always had that for a variety of reasons. So I think there's certain, certain quantities and models that work better for, for that. Um, so we have our team of seven. I'd say our biggest shift has been um, taking what we learned during COVID, um, reacting to the changes of the market. We've become, if anything, more focused on our niche. Um, we did expand, you mentioned retail as a focus, <clears throat> excuse me, we've been retail and wholesale focus for a while, which are sort of two of the three legs of um, direct consumer premium brands. We went heavy into the digital space in line with where um, the market went. You know, again, during COVID, e-com became much more important to everybody. Everyone was trying to catch up. So that has become super critical for us. Um, And then I think we learned a few things during 2020 when retail obviously fell off the cliff for a little while. We took on a lot of interesting searches. Some we learned some new things, some we never should have touched. And and you, you learn from both the good and the bad. And I think coming out of it, we regrouped and decided what are we really good at, what's important. We had a particular focus on chasing higher level positions. So I actually did a little math um, yesterday to take a look at this. Um, Our average fee for our company, because we do a blend of contingency and retained, the number of retained searches have gone up, which ergo usually the size of the fee goes up. Um, we've always run around like between 20 and 22K for our average fee for many, many years. It dropped a little bit during 2019, 2020, but 2021, it was at 21.8, like right there in the average. This year, year to date, our average fee is 28K. Wow, that's quite a jump. Yeah, and that was very deliberate. And I, I think it's part of our ongoing strategy. And, you know, I think everyone can say business is pretty fantastic right now. So uh, same for us. 
Awesome. What I wanted to ask you, first of all, you said you worked some searches that you should have never touched. Can you elaborate on that? Like why in retrospect do you realize that they weren't the kind of searches you should be spending time on? Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. We had, you know, some good, strong clients that um, came to us multiple times in 2020 and we liked working with them and we're comfortable with them. And they said, hey, can you do logistics for us, for an example? Or can you do some of these things in distribution that are outside of our skill set, but we had the time and we said we can do that. We can execute a good search and we did it. Um, but the problem is then you have a one-off unless you want to chase that particular you know, niche and then go to market with those candidates. So that was probably the single biggest learning. And also there is a certain level that we've just decided not to go below because not for nothing, recruiting, let's say a sales associate in retail is every bit as challenging as recruiting a VP. Right. For one tenth 100%. of the payoff. So Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's great. That's, that's smart. And, uh, so you've consciously focused on higher level roles. You mentioned that the proportion of retained work you're doing has increased. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what have you done differently in order to, you know, be more aligned with retained and, and move away from the contingency? So, and I, and I use the phrase Retained. I probably should have said engaged because that's really what it is, which, you know, our model was, yeah, so same thing, except it's not the true engaged one third, one third, one third model. So um, we do a one third down balance upon delivery of candidate. And so a couple mm -hmm. of things. One is very simple, just asking for it every single time. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, as simple <laughs> as that, because I think we had the mindset that, oh, for these you know, 90, 100K managerial level, you know, that's a contingency search and that's baked into all of us. And once we just started asking and explained the benefits of that and how that affects the prioritization within our group and the importance of mutual skin in the game, it resonated mm -hmm. more than we thought it would. And Fantastic. It's a better way of doing business. So, you know, I would love to say we'll go 100% engaged. Um, a lot of my friends in Pinnacle in the industry have made that conscious choice, and it can be a really solid business decision. I don't think we're quite there yet because of the spread of our um, levels and what's a little unique to us. But, you know, I'd say from a search point of view, it's probably quantity rise running 60 40, but from a revenue point of view, it's more like 80 20. So. Right. That makes total sense. And it also just goes to show that, well, what I mean, reading between the lines, the difference, the delta between those two percentages, so 60 40 in terms of number of searches, 80 20 in terms of revenue, suggests that you have a higher success rate with the retained right. searches than the contingent right. ones, right? Right. I mean, they're a little higher level. That's part of it. But yes, you you have assured assurance of uh, completion for that. Right. Okay. No, this is super interesting. Thanks for that. Um, any other changes or uh, shifts that have occurred in the last two years as you've responded to changes in, in the market? Those were, those were the big ones. And then I mentioned we, we grew our team by one, which doesn't sound like much, but we did add a full-time researcher on for us, which really helped our process. Um, and that allowed the people that are focused on frontline candidate development to spend a little less time on building the pipeline and more time reaching out to the pipeline. So that's Excellent. been a pretty dramatic, by one person, a pretty dramatic enhancement to our uh, process and efficiency. I can see that. And, and I mean, if you've got a six-person business, every new hire is significant, right. isn't it? I mean, right. uh, it's, as a percentage of your total team, it's, that's an important exactly. step. That's exactly. awesome. Um, I know that at the Bowerman Group, you are one of your core ideas is the importance of client experience, mm -hmm. not just for client companies, but especially for candidates. Could you talk a little on, you know, why the client or candidate experience is so important? Okay. Uh, let's start with that. Yeah. I mean, and, and a little backstory of that, because that's a pretty mm -hmm. common phrase. I mean, everyone uses client experience for, for one thing yes. or another, but it's, it, it's really 
dawned on me that because my particular group is retail centric, our team is born from retail. You know, really everyone in our team came from it in one way or another. So I think we came into the business with a client service mentality. So that's kind of baked in to who we are. And it really started dawning on me that when we're spending all of our time, whether it's retail, wholesale, e-com, a big part of our conversations with candidates is about how they are building client experience for their brand, because that defines a consumer brand success if you're retail website, whatever that might be. And so that just became such a part, it's just such a part of our conversation every single day. And I realized that we're also living that in how we run our business and have been just innately focused on that client experience. And I think many firms will say, yes, we try to do a great job on the client side. You know, you want to be responsive to your clients, meet their needs, have quick turnaround, provide quality candidates. Everyone will say they do that. Some do it better than others. It was always really lacking on the candidate side of things. And I think particularly in the contingency side of the business, but even in engaged, like the stories we would hear from candidates. And I think I shared this with you, Mark, and you had commented on the post that um, I did a LinkedIn post just one day. It was a random thought. I had talked with a candidate and I was just doing our thing and calling her back and explaining why she wasn't moving forward in the process and did it within our target of 48 hours after the interview. Um, And this person was so grateful for it and and said, Rob, I can't tell you the number of times I'm left hanging, you know, that that I go, whether it's internal recruitment or external recruiters. And, And I just did a post and I said, this sort of amazed me that, you know, this isn't common practice. We're in a people business. It seems like just treating people well is what we should be doing. And it was probably one of our most commented on liked posts of the year. And and it just really struck home that that's an issue. And it's been an issue. That is an issue. Right. It's massive. And I remember seeing that post because, I mean, you got a lot of engagement on that, uh, on that LinkedIn post. In fact, we'll, we'll link to it in the, uh, in the show notes here because it was a great, um, a great LinkedIn post, mm-hmm. but it just, the fact it resonated demonstrates how big of an issue this is. Um, so with that said, like you mentioned in, in passing there that you have a kind of standard of, giving feedback within 48 hours. Um, do you have other sort of company standards in place like that to ensure that you are able to deliver a consistently high customer experience? Yeah, I mean, it's it, 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 at many levels because you really have to touch every single level of the process. So, I mean, if, if we want to yeah. break it down a little bit, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think first and foremost, it's where are you in the world of recruiting and your niche? Do you own your niche and are you a thought leader in it? So I think it has to start there. Like you have to know what the hell you're talking about when you're talking to your clients and you're talking to your candidates. You have to have that credibility. So that's where it starts if you have that mantle of expertise. So when you are talking to a client, whether it's a new client, an established client, they know that you're working with their competitors. They know that you have been really established in this industry. You can talk intelligently about it. You can offer feedback. Mm -hmm. And so you start that with the job intake call. You know, how many times do we get the recruiter training of, you know, all the questions you should ask when you take a good job order? And yes, you naturally do that. But then if you are a market master, then you ask the more in-depth questions. And that makes your search more efficient because you're going to find the candidates that align to both the hard and the soft skills. But also when you're speaking with those candidates, you're showing your knowledge, you're imparting the knowledge, not just of the industry, but of um, what that particular client need is. And again, that's an area we get feedback from all the time from candidates that, you know, they're used to getting these calls and they're sent a job description and maybe they know what the pay scale is and nothing more. And we have to get into the culture piece. Of course. Right. All right, awesome. So um, can you give an example of the kinds of 
either questions or at least topics that you would get into with a client where they would tell you, Rob, wow, you're like other search firms we worked with don't really probe on these areas. Uh, well, I think starting with the obvious one, why is the position open? And if it was vacated sure. by somebody, okay, what didn't work with that person? And really getting them to open up on it was an internal promotion that they overpromoted. Was it somebody external that the culture didn't match? You know, all of those things. And I go to culture a lot because in our world, you can imagine in sort of the fashion and luxury world, there's a lot of nuances to the culture that maybe you don't have in other industries, but that ends up being the make or break for us. So it's part of that. Um, we will really insist on, while we're partnering with HR, can we have a conversation with the hiring manager? That can get tricky. We all know that. But it's important, you know, what does that hiring manager look for? And again, the hard skills, the soft skills. So it's really probing. And if you do it right, it's a good half hour intake call, which seems like a lot. But if you think of the time that saves you on the back end, it's an awfully good investment of time. Um, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's not like a script um, of questions, but I guess just open-ended yeah. questions that get you the answers that other people don't necessarily go for. A hundred percent. I get that. But while we're on the subject, um, how do you navigate the issue of partnering with our... Uh, partnering with HR while also having access to the hiring manager. Yeah, and that's, it, it, isn't that the, the trick as old as time in recruiting? <laughs> you know, everyone, yeah, they, exactly. And, and, you know, I never subscribe to the mindset of go over HR's head. Like I've right, never been right, in, right. in 20 years, I've never been that way. And, and I feel like maybe that's gone away a little bit. You can't ignore it. But if you, if you make it clear from the beginning that my job is to make you better, my job is to get your position filled faster. And so I want to make you a partner. And if they see you as a partner, not a threat, that's step number one. And sometimes that takes Correct. a minute. Sometimes you literally have to get through a whole search and be successful and have them see that you're not that person and that they trust you. And yes. then trust is important. Trust is huge. And then it's yeah. having them on the call. Ideally, you do a three-way Zoom with the hiring authority. They see the questions yeah. you're asking. Um, maybe it's questions they didn't think of before. And you just include the HR person as part of the conversation. And if you're respectful to them, in general, they'll be respectful to you. I mean, um, I mean, this is such a recurring topic and always has been. I wrote a blog article about how to get access to hiring managers without alienating HR. I'll include a link to that article uh, to the show notes here. But um yeah, going uh, trying to bypass them is not going to work. That's going to come back and bite you. At the same time, being um, just accepting that, well, I guess I can't talk to the line manager. That's just the way it is, is not the right approach either. It's definitely a um, a conversation that needs to be had and 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 negotiated. Mm -hmm. Which you know, um, and and I think insisted upon really. Uh, in order for us to do our job properly. But um, it has to be put across in terms of a including them, making them feel like you're, you're, you respect them and uh, that they are still going to be in control of the process. Right. They're going to be in the loop. They're going to, you know, um, and at the same time, you're just going to make their life easier and we're going to get a better outcome here. So, right. And, and yeah, in totally. contingency searches, you, you do have to realize they're doing their own thing. Maybe they post the position, maybe internal talent acquisition is, is working on it. And that's fine if you know the rules in advance. And, and I'll always say to, you know, internal HR, you know, I'm happy to partner with you, but I won't compete against you. So if your mm -hmm. mindset is you're going to fill in around the blanks, but I'm going to focus on this, then that's not a good search. But if you say to me, I've done this for two weeks, here's the five people I have, here's my benchmark, here's the two we're moving forward with, and I'll say, okay, great, I can go to market with that and present at or above that benchmark, then that generally works. And by the way, we always win those. <laughs> great, I like that. When, when does example. internal talent acquisition ever, ever pick up the phone and recruit? So, Zero. Right. So you always win yeah. if you do it right. 
Okay, fantastic. Video interviewing has been part of mainstream recruitment for over a decade now, but have you figured it out yet? Video interviewing certainly looks good as part of your recruitment service. It gives you the appearance of being a cutting edge recruitment business owner on the front line of technology. But is it paying its way? Are you getting more new business, more repeat business because you're using video interviewing? Or is it starting to look more like a financial drain on your recruitment business? Our sponsor and trusted partner, iIntro, has a solution for this. Their video interviewing is just one part of a complete suite of recruitment tools, so you don't need to spend a fortune on yet another tech platform. Everything you need is included in one package. Additionally, they provide training for your recruitment firm to make sure you're using the technology to the best possible effect for your existing clients, as well as how to use it to attract new clients. If you're thinking of investing in video interviewing, don't take another step until you've requested your free demonstration from iIntro. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retain to book your free consultation. See for yourself how to use video interviewing to get a true return on your investment. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. So coming back to the topic of client experience, you explained that this is something that has to be incorporated at every stage in the process. And you, you, so we've spoken a little bit about the client intake call. Uh, and then how, what are the subsequent steps where you have made it a point of ensuring uh, a positive client experience for both parties? Yeah. So it is the ongoing communication. So um, once you, okay, you have the candidate, you've done a good job screening that candidate, you've imparted information that they wouldn't get from other people, you put them into the interview process. Um, we have a pretty detailed um, prep prep process that we go through here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, most recruiters will say, I do a prep call. But do you do the real prep call? Do you have the inside information where you're talking about the style of the person who's interviewing, um, the setting? You know, do you give people tips on how to do a great video interview? You know, so it's doing all of those things. And I think what's become increasingly important is the client prep call, which that was always yes. forgotten for a long time, but especially Absolutely. in this market. Like flip side is talking to the client and okay, here's the candidate expectation, here's his needs, here's what he's looking for, these are the hot buttons, and reminding companies that, you know, this is this is a candidate-driven market. You have to sell. And if they don't get that, they're going to fail. So it's it's having those prep calls every single time. It's discussing where they're at in the process with you and other processes every single time. Mm -hmm. You bring up who else have you talked to, where are you at in, in the um, interview process. Again, it's, it's just ongoing, super open, detailed communication. Seems like a lot, but I, you know, every single prep call is at least 20 minutes for us. Fantastic. I think, I, well, I wonder if this is a bit of a lost art. Um, I was, part of my original training as a recruiter was uh, by watching Tony Byrne videos. Didn't we all? Um, and uh, I believe, wasn't Tony Byrne involved in Pinnacle in some He started way? it, actually. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so, uh, and he lived, he was really popular here in the UK and he lived in London for a while and he would tour around. So I got to see him once. I went to one of his, uh, his seminars, but his 30 steps in the placement process really broke this down and mm -hmm. looked at every, like, prep, call to the client, prep call to the candidate, you know, debrief client and debrief candidate after every round and so on. And that was kind of drummed into me. And sometimes I speak to recruiters and they're, they're just kind of skimming over that, right. which I think is a, is a huge mistake. But can you talk about the client prep a little bit? Because <clears throat> um, I'm aware uh, we, in our uh, inner circle coaching group, one of the big topics at the moment is things like counteroffers or deal-breaking scenarios of all kinds, really. But but one that has come up a couple of times recently is the client botching the interview and or the offer stage mm -hmm. in some way. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, what do you guys do in your process to preempt that? Yeah, and, and 
again, I can't sit here and say it's perfect because we're dealing with people on both sides of the equation and botching mm-hmm. can happen at every step of the <laughs> step of the way. But if you do the right job, you at least minimize that. So, you know, that conversation, and again, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes the, you, you're not getting that client on the phone and it's an email. Sometimes it's a very detailed email, read this before the interview. But it, again, it's basically informing them of this is, you know, this is why we reminding them why we like the candidate. This is what they're going to bring to you. Um, these are the successes that they've had. Um, and then here's what they're interested in in a company. Here's what they like about your culture. Here's what their pain point is, where they're at, or conversely, hey, this is a candidate I recruited for you. They are happy as can be at their other company. They're curious. Mm. They took this interview because we have credibility with them. And I've talked up your company and your opportunity, but you have to sell this, but know that they don't have a compelling reason to leave. So here is what you offer in your company that could be better for them that you should emphasize. And Brilliant. And yes, and I'd love to say it's utopian and everyone listens and does what they're supposed to. They don't, but again, you're minimizing risk at every step. Mm-hmm. Totally. I, I mean, I, just out of curiosity, since we're talking shop, yeah. this is a bit tangential, but um, one of the things I learned from Tony Byrne was the characteristics of a placeable candidate. One of those is multiple compelling reasons to consider a move. And if they either A, are only moving for money or B, you know, aren't really motivated, like, wouldn't are unlikely to make a move um, for the right opportunity, then they're a high risk candidate, and we probably shouldn't uh, present them. Are you? Are, do you go with that? Well, or? I mean, that's that's a good solid rule. And given a choice, yes, you'll you'll move forward more aggressively with the candidate that has pain points. But yeah. if it's a really tight search, you know, and and we have those, our world is incredibly yeah. small. And you know, you sure. have the candidate, and they, you know. Chanel wants somebody from Gucci or whatever it might be, you, you're obligated to provide that person and, again, use yes. your credibility. Um, there's always, if, if they're moving forward with you and they're willing to take an interview, there's always something compelling. Sure, that's true. Right? So yeah. I'm not, I don't disagree with what you say, and we're always prioritizing that, for sure. But you can lean in, and if you dig deep enough, you find those one or two things. And then if you mm-hmm. know legit, that your client company has that, you can build that if everyone does the job right. Yeah, Yeah. no, totally. So um, coming back to our theme then, what else defines a positive client experience? Can can you give us uh, any more examples of that? Um, Like particularly from the, in your world, you deal with like the luxury uh, brands and so on. What mm -hmm. other parallels have you tried to create from a as a rec- recruitment service provider. Okay. Okay. So you know, it's it, if we just sidestep a little bit because our world is interesting. People find luxury brands interesting, especially if they don't live within it. But you know, I'll, I'll give you a couple parallels because I think if if we all step back and you want to think about how you are branding your firm. Okay. So you have a brand that you put out to the marketplace for your firm for you as a recruiter. So. If you think about it a little bit, you can align with different levels of consumer brands and behave that way. So I I think you and I talked briefly about this, but I'll give you an example on one extreme. Um, When you ask people to think of luxury brands, they think of Hermes, Chanel, Louis Vuitton, you know, the brands you see on Fifth Avenue, Champs-Élysées, you know, Rodeo Drive. Um, Hermes is kind of the epitome of having a product and having a brand and having the cachet that they can kind of do whatever they want. They, they actually have a, a bag called the Birkin bag, which sells for tens of thousands of dollars. There's waiting lists for this bag. This is wow. the item that you want. So they have built that into such a thing that they can put clients through paces. And there was actually, a, a, it was in the news that uh, in China, Hermes China put a process in place that um, you had to actually buy a certain number of things that you didn't want before they'd put you on the list to let you buy one of these bags. (laughs) So wouldn't we like to be that as a recruiter? 
So if you happen to be in some hyper tight niche that you have, you know, you have the candidates, you are the only recruiter that has those candidates, then you don't have to worry about client experience. You have the candidate. That's all people want. You don't have to treat anybody. You have to treat the candidate well. You don't have to necessarily treat the client well. And you're probably going to do just fine. But how many of us have that? Precious few. Right? I don't know any. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Everyone has some competitor. <clears throat> but you could maybe argue that, you know, when you drop down a, a level from Hermes to the Louis Vuitton Chanel's, maybe you equate that to, let's say, Corn Ferry. You have a brand. People go to you when they think a certain level, that's the brand that's top of mind. So they go there. So if you're Corn, corn Ferry, you, you have your process. You probably value client service, but you're, you're not working so hard to sell on that. Okay. Now drop it down another level. And so that's where I think we fall in. So if we look at mm -hmm. our luxury brand world, and we have clients like Xenia Ferragamo, Brunello Cuccinelli, which you may or may not have heard of, but they're premium, they're luxury, they're not the number one go-to label. So they have to build client rapport. They learned a lot, particularly during COVID, about the phrase meet, client, meet clients where they are. So mm. you know when retail was shut down, you were sending things to people's homes or you were calling or you were visiting or you were helping them through the website, whatever connected you to the client, to the product, you were figuring out a way to get that done. Okay. So I kind of put our firm there as a premium mm -hmm. recruiter that will focus on meeting clients and candidates where they are, identify what their needs are, put those things together. Um, we talked about the uh, engaged fees part. When you go into a Ferragamo, you don't negotiate for a pair of shoes. It's nice. very expensive. That's the price. That's what you're going to pay. So we put the expectations out. Um, with that price comes quality. So we run a few percentage points above where our industry falls. We're about five percentage points above um, where most retail recruiters are. We're firm and we ask for that, but we say, but here's the value you get on the other side. I love, let me just pause sure. on that for a second, because <clears throat> wherever possible, like I like selling and with analogies because mm -hmm. it's easy for people to understand. And wherever possible, I encourage recruiters to choose analogies that from the industry they serve because then it's the person will immediately relate to and understand what you're saying. And you just gave a perfect example of that in explaining what your fee is and presenting it as, um, you know, it's just, this is the fee, it's not negotiable. And you have an already example from the fashion industry mm -hmm. where, um, you know, it is expensive and, and here's why kind of thing. I, I love that. Yeah, exactly. And, and with that, again, you know, if you're, if let's continue the analogy, if you're going to yeah. a Ferragamo store and you're not familiar with the brand and if they're doing their job right, they're going to tell you about the handcrafted nature of the product and the source of the leather and the styling and so on that justifies the price along with being in this really nice place and they'll give you bubbly water and all those things to make the experience. Nice. <laughs> so, so that justifies the price if you can afford it. So right. we do our version of that. Um, so it's, it's going back to that process. It's explaining to mm -hmm. clients that we are going to only send you people that make sense. And one ratio we have, and I feel like this is our most important one is our send out to placement. And we live mm -hmm. and die by this one. And we run consistently five to one, which is really good, particularly in our industry against our competitors. So that's one of the, one of the first things I talk about with clients. Like, okay, I'm not going to get you a resume this afternoon, but I will get you great candidates within five days or so. But I'm not going to send you 15. I'm going to send you three mm -hmm. to five that you want. And if they buy into that, I have them forever because they, they value that, that time savings. They value the quality. Flip that to the candidate side. They know that they're not getting a call from us on every single thing. 
you know, we, we curate quite a bit. You know, we try to be focused in the outreach. We try to engage with the candidate. We tell the story and we'll get this feedback a lot from candidates. You know, Rob, I like your group because you have great jobs, you have great clients, but you don't call with things that waste my time. So, Got it. so it's, you can see how this is all building and it's that common theme mm -hmm. of know what you're doing, communication, mutual respect. You keep that going through the whole process and then ideally, again, you've minimized the risk when you come to offer because you know what's at the heart of the client, what's at the heart of the candidate. You've treated everybody well, they've had a good experience and it comes together. You mentioned the send out to placement ratio five to one. When you say send out, do you mean first time interview? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's true. I wanted to just clarify that, that a little differently. Yeah, I, I know that. Well, that was Tony Byrne always called a, f a first interview a send out. But I find sometimes when people hear send out, they think submission. Right. And then it gets confusing. Oh. So, um, so, yeah, one in five is excellent. And, and I'll say, sure. if, if you want to consider the submission, and I can't give you a, a ratio on that off the top of my head, but mm -hmm. I would safely say 95% of submissions are seen because we built the credibility. Aha. Okay. So I'm glad, I'm glad you said yeah. that because so that's important. Too. Um, yeah. I, I'm a huge believer in metrics and knowing your numbers so that you can, over time, you can, you can uh, improve them. And if you can improve across a range of um, areas just by a little bit, then they multiply together and give you a compounding effect, right? So if you improve your submission to interview ratio and your interview to placement ratio and your average fee, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. then you, it, for the same amount of effort, you're amplifying your return mm -hmm. on, on effort there. So 95% is exactly where it should be. Um, I find recruiters, when I ask them to share their metrics, for this exact purpose to A, benchmark so you can improve, but also B, to analyze, um, you know, use it as a predictive tool. The submission to interview ratio is very often a weak link in the process because, well, for a whole range of reasons, but what often they're doing is they're just emailing resumes mm -hmm. And then chasing for feedback, and then letting the client say yes, no, yes, no, uh, and applying a second filter. You've already pre-selected these candidates. Right. You're sending them because they match the brief and the culture. Right. You, you know, you understand your your market. Why are you letting the client reject candidates that you've, on the basis of a piece of paper, you're the one who's spoken to this person, exactly. and you have reasons why you're representing them, and. Uh, that's just such an easy, I think, an easy fix. Right. And you do often have process. to push that. I mean, because you will get Susie, 12-year-old HR manager who says, well, I want right. this and this candidate doesn't have it. But right. again, I'll say, remember the conversation. These are the things we were looking for. We spoke to this person. And oh, by the way, they may have spoken to two people here. They may have spoken to the frontline recruiter plus me as the person submitting because they had more questions. Like, so I've asked all those, here's why I'm submitting. So wouldn't it be worth yeah. your time rather than judging just on the resume? And if you've done your job, 100%. you can usually turn that around. Absolutely. Rob, um, you mentioned, obviously, communication throughout the process, mutual respect. I feel like these are, no recruiter would disagree with any of this, right? right? And um, I can't, and no recruiter, as as far as I'm concerned, gets out of bed and wants to do a bad job, right? right? And, of course. You know, people have positive intentions. They want to deliver a high level of service. Why do you think that doesn't happen in so many cases? Well, it's there's always that temptation to take the shotgun approach. And and that can work in certain instances. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it absolutely can. If you, and, and particularly now, Okay, because you're in a market that you might be doing some particular segment that's just so hot that if you find somebody, send them to 10 companies, you'll get five interviews and you'll place this person. So that, that absolutely works. 
you know, I mean, again, let's, if we go back to retail, um, H&M exists for a reason, right? right they right. do incredible volume. They make a lot of money. They're not doing it on quality. You don't have an expectation right. of quality when you go there. You want something quick. You want it now. You want it cheap. So as recruiting is like any other industry, you can have that. And maybe that's an okay thing. We've just made a conscious choice that for long-term sustainability, quality is what's going to build the long-term relationships. So if I'm sitting here looking at, you know, I used Ferragamo as a product example. They've been a client for literally 20 years. So through the ups, through the downs, you know, we've, yes, there are periods where you take a gap because we've all had this happen. Different hiring authority comes in, different HR, they have a relationship, but it comes back. (laughs) So you know, you build, you build that by doing those things. So you make a conscious choice in how you do your business. And if you look at your model and say, how can I do this better? And I agree, nobody, nobody wants to do a bad job. But if you think of it through the lens of what's going to be the most sustainable, what's going to move me ahead, and what ultimately can help me increase not just my volume, but my, you know, my fees, my quality of searches, that's, you know, I think that's a, a, a good rationale to go forward with. Have you ever dreamed of launching, scaling, and one day selling your recruitment business? If so, I highly recommend you speak to Recruitment Entrepreneur. Founded by former Dragon's Den star James Kahn, Recruitment Entrepreneur is the world's leading private equity firm specifically focused on the recruitment industry. They invest in startups and scale-ups and have already backed over 30 founders. There's no reason why you couldn't be their next joint venture partner. James's first company, Alexander Mann, sold in 2013 for $260 million. His second venture, Humana International, he grew with Doug Bugey to over 140 offices in 30 countries before selling to MRI. James and his team are actively looking for ambitious recruiters from across the United States and around the world who want to partner with them to launch and scale successful recruitment businesses. They provide the funding, expertise, mentoring, and back office support to make your dream a reality. To learn more about Recruitment Entrepreneur in the USA or anywhere globally, go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC as in venture capital. Book a discovery call with them and be sure to tell them that you were sent by Mark Whitby in the Resilient Recruiter podcast. Once again, visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. I love the way that you have positioned yourself as a premium brand within executive search. I think that thought process um, makes a lot of sense. And um, sometimes I just wonder if it's a breakdown, like for those who are struggling to meet that standard, I wonder if it's um, partly people feeling massively stretched, overwhelmed, um, like they're, they have to serve the client because the client pays the bills ultimately, but things slip through the cracks and it's probably going to be on the candidate side, right? Because although, of course, you could argue they're your future clients and they also are referral sources and everything else, Mm -hmm. um, in the short term, it's easier to ignore the candidate side than the client side. And I wonder if Partly it's driven by that pre- the constant pressure that we're under to deliver and to, you know, bill and so on. Uh, or maybe it's they just don't have a effective process in place. I don't know. How do you guys address this issue of like just there's only so many hours in the day, you're under huge pressure to deliver for clients. How do you make sure that you still call every candidate within 48 hours to tell them, I'm really sorry you're not moving forward. Here's why, et cetera. Yeah. And I'd love to tell you we're perfect. We're not, per- I put that in the post, like we're not perfect, but we try hard to yeah. be perfect. So I yeah. think if you, if you set up your framework that way, so, you know, we use, we use PCR for, uh, for an yeah. ATS system and we've structured it such that it's there and it's visible and it's very obvious, like what stage the candidate's at. And we built into our process that, you know, once you know who's moving forward, you look at the little symbol by the candidate name that interviewed, and if it doesn't have the X, then they're still active. And you don't turn it into an X until somebody reached out to that candidate. So now, 
do you try to be efficient about it? Yeah. I mean, in a perfect world, I can have a lovely 10-minute debrief with every single candidate on all of the reasons why. To your point, sometimes the volume doesn't allow that. But if you place the call, you leave a message because nobody ever answers the phone, and you say, give me a call back. And then if you don't hear, you at least do a text explaining, hey, not moving forward. Two little sentences, why? Give me a call if you want to talk further. Great. That gets you yeah, there. Absolutely. There's ways yeah, to get yeah. yourself there, but you have to you have to at least make the effort. And is it always 48 hours? No, sometimes you don't hear from the client. But you have to have a goal. And you start from that. Awesome. And uh I, I heard an interesting idea from the um the CEO of a local firm here in Edinburgh called iMultiply. Uh, they, I think they specialize in accounting um, recruitment. And uh, I had coffee with the CEO and she was explaining the way they've baked this into the DNA of their business is um, af- at the conclusion of every single search, um, one of the directors of the business will contact the candidate and the client and get their feedback. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have a rating scale. I don't know how that works exactly, but they have a score card basically. And the recruiter, uh, in order to get their full commission, needs to get consistently high scores, not just from the client, but from the candidate. Like that. Um, they still get paid, like they still get paid commission for a successful placement, but in order to earn the highest percentage, I think they need to also have the quality in there as well. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a neat idea. Yeah, it's like the retail version of secret shop scores. Right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, yeah. that's a brilliant idea because it, it puts some teeth into that. Totally. Um, Rob, I would love to hear, because you're the president of Pinnacle, I'd love to hear what are the kind of issues and topics that Pinnacle members are discussing at your meetings these days? Well, my, my bet is at the core, they're the same issues you're talking about <laughs> with, with your working groups, yeah. because there, there are certain universal truths. So we're living in a universe of counteroffers, multiple offers, offer turndowns. Um, so I, I don't think that's all that different in our world than anybody else's world. But, um, you know, I think because we're a pretty well curated group, we hopefully are elevating the discussion a little bit higher than somebody who's been in the business two years. You know. But um, you know, I think it's it, we we just had a conference back in April, and yeah, a lot of it was it, it's the things we've been talking about. We did talk a lot about client and candidate experience, candidate control, the illusion of candidate control mm-hmm. when you like think you have it, <laughs> right. but you really don't. <laughs> but, but how do you, yeah, it's kind of a misnomer. Right, like right. The, the word candidate control, it is a, just an industry term. We all know what that means, but that you can't really control someone. You can only influence them. Exactly. Exactly. So, so I, I think from that point of view, it's not unique, but um, mm-hmm. we've had some really interesting um, conversations and meetings recently. Um, so we have our, our biannual uh, conferences and then mm-hmm. What we also do is meet once a month and have some sort of a virtual session. And we mm-hmm. just did a big biller panel with, um, I think it was four members that all have been billing 1.5 million personally, which is a nice number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, And yeah. Uh, we have more than a few million dollar billers in, in Pinnacle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it goes back to something I mentioned earlier in this conversation um, about, you know, as you said, like we're all stretched. Everyone's moving a million miles an hour. Most people's businesses are good. So how do you, how do you get to that number? How do you get from one to 1.5? How do you get from 750 to one? And you can't, you can't manufacture time. But one of our members, um, Michael Petrak, I don't know if you've had Michael on. He is I know Michael. He's brilliant. been on. Brilliant guy. Yeah. yeah. I, I love Michael. And he actually said he, without giving away too many Pinnacle secrets, but he, he actually talked about manufacturing time. He said, now you can't do that literally, but how do you do that? And that's where the whole concept of candidate recyclability came in. Yes. So this all ties in together. So, you know, in his world and in many successful recruiters world, you have your niche. 
and some they're ultra, ultra tight, which makes them the go-to person or maybe one of three go-to people in the country. So you get yourself there, you focus on that, you have candidates that you're not doing that, you know, production search that you can never do anything with that person ever again. You're just focusing on those things. So that became a big topic of conversation about how, you know, you do that. It justifies the higher fees. It justifies the better process. It all feeds upon itself. So if you're upping your quantity, upping your fee structure, upping your average fee, you're billing more. Absolutely. Uh, the thing I will link to Michael um, Michael's interview in the show notes as well. That was a fantastic interview. And the thing that struck me is how quickly he can turn searches around. And so if you imagine a typical like executive search might take six to 12 weeks, if it's one of the, you know, big, you know, top 10 search firms, they probably take three to six months. But, you know, in our world, it's, you know, let's say six to 12 weeks. But if he can do it in a week, he's going to do four to- four times more volume right. than somebody else right. with the same number of hours. Right. And that's how, because he's such a market master. Right. And he is in an incredibly busy niche and, and he owns it and he's worked hard to own that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, totally. yeah, but, but going back to your question, I mean, those, those are the themes. And so it, it always goes back to how you build your best practices. We'll do roundtable conversations on what works for different people. And I'll share my story and Michael and others will share their story. And you, you learn, you know, you learn from being around other people and ideally being around people better than you. And you always, you always want to do that. Uh, absolutely. I agree a hundred percent. And that's the basis behind our coaching groups as well is just having a peer group, having a community of like-minded folks who are excellent at what they do and sharing, sharing ideas and working through common challenges. Yeah. Um, your did in the discussion around counter offers, did you hear any new approaches to this apart from what we learned from Tony Byrne, like in the nineties, like, uh, which, which still works. And I think people should go back to basics sometimes with these things. And uh, sometimes when you have counter offers, it means that you've, you've not had a tight process. You've gotten a little bit sloppy. You didn't qualify at every stage. You didn't, you know, uh, do your trial closes and, and so on and so forth. But I just wondered if there's anything new. Um, it, it does go a lot back to the basics. I'll say one idea that comes up more often now, and I think this is relatively new, and I'll say I've tried it a couple times, is if you're feeling like the candidate will be subject to counter, or even if you're not, but they're talking about how much they like their company, say, hey, listen, you know, we're going to go through this process. I've always, you know, for years and years said, judge my opportunity against your next level up because guarantee you're going to get something. You're going to get more money. You might get a promotion. So judge where you're going against what your next step would be if it's yours within the next two years. So that's always been part of the discussion. But a newer idea is encouraging the candidate to go to their company and saying, hey, listen, I'm getting a lot of calls. Some of this is looking really good. I'm thinking of going to this other company and just get the counter offer out of the way. Yes. Yeah, and absolutely. This is this is a world that that can work in, and better to know yeah. now than later in the process. Absolutely, yeah. I agree hundred yeah. percent. Um, I think sometimes, like it's just Candace are getting such crazy offers now, which I think that's the unprecedented part. Counter offers are nothing new, right? Um, and I, I actually like that idea of telling the candidate to go and ask for a raise before you start the whole process is a, is a good one. Um, but sometimes I think the candidates themselves are even surprised, like they're thinking, nah, I, 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 I want to move for this and this and this reason. But then it's such a big increase that they're, you know, they're taken aback. Right. And, and I don't know how it's working over in your corner of the world, but we're mm-hmm. now a few years into most markets and basically every market we recruit in that, we cannot, as recruiters and companies, cannot, as hiring authorities, ask current salary. Right. 
So you ask yes. expectations. So mm-hmm. that's a whole other level right. of conversation. So mm-hmm. if, if you've been doing your business enough, you kind of know if somebody is totally out of whack and you can rein that in a little bit. Um, but, yeah. but that takes that part of the dynamic out. So, mm, you know, they're, yeah, yeah. they're at 120 and your job pays 180, but they mm-hmm. put out their expectation is 180. You know, it would help to know that they're at 120, not 160, because that tells you what the counter offer is. <laughs> We're missing that right. information and candidates are awfully yes. clever now about what they yes. reveal. Yes, no, absolutely. Yeah. That does add a dimension which is uh which is challenging um but going back to rapport and if you've if you've engaged with the candidate well very often they'll tell you like they're much more open you have some that are just they're fort knox and they don't open up on it you have to play it accordingly but if you've done your job well you have a higher likelihood of getting to the real numbers 100 percent. that is Absolutely true. And and part of that is um, if you're transparent, forthcoming, honest, you know, and um, showing respect and ge- also showing your market knowledge, giving value, showing that you're a, a market master, as you said, you're more likely for them to buy into you, number one, and also number two, to be more open you know, uh, reciprocally, you know, reciprocally with what you're sharing. So, um, yeah, no, fantastic. Um, Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you again. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about today that we haven't, uh, haven't covered? We we definitely hit the high points. I mean, it's, this is such an amazing time to be in our business, isn't it? It's fascinating and amazing. I mean, it's, it's a low bar to entry to get into recruiting now. You know, I always say recruiting in real estate or similar, like when the market's hot, anybody can do it and you can throw crap and you'll do fine. (laughs) And and, and that happens. And then the the market turns and then those, you know, the crap throwers go away. But, um, you know, I think it's just a good reminder for everybody that there is value to having, to being premium, to having a quality process. It goes back to what I said, that is much more sustainable over time. That will carry you through the bad times. And it's not a lot more investment in time if you do it right. You just keep that mindset all the time. Uh, it, you're right. It is a shift in mindset more than anything. And, uh, and then a commitment to live up to the positioning that, you know, where you've put yourself. Um, but you you hinted at or, or raised a good point, which is that, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty right now about where the market's going. The stock market is down, um, you know, due to so many different reasons, you know, inflation, supply chain issues with wars and 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 so on. Um, what's your, as you're in your role as president of Pinnacle, but also just running your own firm, what's your attitude towards this and what are you doing to ensure that you are going to, you know, have a sustainable business regardless of where the market goes from here? Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things, one of which is while still having a quality process, we are chasing and working really hard and relishing this time because it won't last forever. You know, I think conventional wisdom seems that, you know, we have until probably the middle of next year, barring any crazy things happening. So we still have a few months, but we don't have years of this. So this is the time to actually, to absolutely maximize. And then I think it's being really smart about what you're concentrating on and what your niche is. And that's why, Mm -hmm. like I said, we pivoted. We, we in particular looked at the digital space because that was the natural add on. So if you're in the business, look at, you know, look at horizontally, where can you spread out and build your universe? That's a natural sort of one step over from what you're doing without starting from scratch. So you know, yes, definitely. So so think toward those future things and do think from a from a quality and a and a relationship point of view because you want everyone to remember you on the other side of things. Hundred percent. And I mean, you you yourself are in with your shift to e-commerce almost uh, in a position that the COVID epidemic didn't hurt you. In fact, maybe it benefited you. Um, was that 
just a, by luck or by design? Well, you always want to say it's by design and you do things purposely, but <laughs> luck comes into play. <laughs> Because it goes back to that control thing. There's so much we don't control. But no, but I mean, it was deliberate. And, and we had been aiming in that direction for a while. Mm. Um, but I will tell you, and, you know, we have the retail and wholesale side. That is phenomenally busy, too, because, you know, retail didn't go away. People missed it. Yes. <laughs> when it went away, it came back. Yes. It came back differently. And yeah. that created recruitment opportunities because companies needed leaders who were more resilient who were more creative, mm -hmm. who got their company through COVID. So even in the more quote-unquote traditional channels, that has been really busy mm -hmm. for us. So we've seen escalation really? really on all three legs of our stool, as we like to call it. But e-com is the, you that's know, and awesome. digital is the tricky one because that's the evolving one. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Rob, it's always a pleasure, and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experience and uh, unique perspective. Yeah, thank you. I, I love chatting with you. This is fun. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.